You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. You have to be able to manipulate people, make them believe that you're somebody you're not, be very confident, and and there's a lot of value behind that. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Got some good stories to share this week. And later in the show, David Sensi from MasterCard's New Data Security. He's going to be discussing the security issues with remote access and coaching frauds. All right, let's dig into some stories here, Joe. I'm going to kick things off for us uh, this week. Uh, Imagine, Joe, you're sitting at home and you're minding your own business and you, you, uh, your, your lovely bride brings in the day's uh, mail from the mailbox from the postal service and there's an envelope there, uh, kind of a thick, heavy envelope, and you Mm -hmm. open it up and it's a letter from Best Buy. Right. And it says, Dear Joe, Best Buy Company thanks you for being our regular customer for a long period of time, so we would like to send you a gift card in the amount of $50. And sure enough, inside there, there's a gift card. Uh, and it says, the letter, which I should add, is on Best Buy uh, logo um, uh, paper. Right. It says, uh, letterhead is the word I'm looking for. <laughs> letterhead, <laughs> yes. Uh, <clears throat> yeah. It says, uh, you can spend it on any product from the list of items presented on a USB stick. Mm. And there's a USB stick in the envelope as well. Uh-huh. Thanks again for choosing us. Sincerely, Jonas, Customer Relations. Right. Well, Joe, what are you going to do here? <laughs> what am I going to do? <laughs> I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to take that USB stick and plug it into a, a Linux machine and see what happens. <laughs> yeah. And then I'm going to try to explore it and uh, because they're probably banking on me being a Windows user. Yeah, uh, probably. And there's probably some auto-run thing that happens. Uh, whatever machine I plug it into is going to be a disposable machine. <laughs> okay, take it, take it down to your the neighbor down the street who you don't like and ask right. him if you can plug it into his computer. Well, I have plenty of disposable <laughs> machines just sitting around, Dave. So As you do, yeah. yeah. As, yeah. Well, as I do. I mean, not yeah. a lot of people do. But, <laughs> right. You know, I have like my old, the first laptop I got when uh, I was employed at Hopkins, I still have that laptop, and mm. it's running Fedora right now. Okay. Um, so I could... And I, I don't do a lot with it. I just keep it on as a Linux machine. Yeah. Uh, so I could just pop it in there and see what's going on. And yeah. if, if my machine gets pwned, I can just slick it and re-image it. So not <laughs> okay. a big deal. But what would the average person do? Uh, that's a good question. Yeah. Hopefully the average person would not plug that USB stick in. Yeah, I would hope so, but evidently some people do. Mm-hmm. Um, the folks over at TrustWave, which is a security company, uh, they got their hands on this. Someone sent this to them, so suspicious of it being a scam. Mm-hmm. And so they did uh, what you described there. They plugged that USB stick into a machine that's capable of analyzing it. And sure enough, there was a malicious payload on board. It says in this article, which, uh, by the way, I should point out, this article is from uh, PC Magazine, okay. PCMag.com, uh, written by Michael Kahn. Uh, and sure enough, uh, something using uh, PowerShell commands to uh, then download more malware and Bob's your uncle. Right. Right? <laughs> they pwn your machine like that. <laughs> right, right. But, uh, you know, 
thing comes to you on letterhead we're using the lure of greed where yep. they there's a there's a gift card in this uh package here right and i suppose most people probably wouldn't first check to see if the gift card is actually valid right uh, right yeah that's a good question. You know, the gift card is probably just a gift card. In fact, I'm looking at it on on your screen right there. That's probably just a gift card someone went into a store, grabbed, and walked out with. Yeah, right. Because they they as as it says on the card, card has no value until activated by cashier. Right. So I imagine if you grab a gift card, it's not the kind of thing they're going to wrestle you to the floor on right. <laughs> your way out of Best Buy yep. <laughs> because it really has no value. Or any local supermarket, you go to yeah. those gift card stacks that they have or yeah. end caps and there's there's just hundreds of gift cards from different vendors all over the place right right so uh by having that in there and then having the usb uh stick but then in the letter saying basically that implying that you're going to be restricted to get stuff that's on a list that's right. on the stick that's how they get you to to put the stick in your computer yeah 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 so the lesson here is, I think, uh, pretty obvious and straightforward. If you get something like like this in the mail, and uh, right, <laughs> it's 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 most likely a scam. Certainly, if there's a USB stick, it is a scam. Right. Uh, nobody what, from Best Buy is going to be sending you something like this. What's interesting is that this is a high cost attack. Mm. Um, I'd like to know what the success rate of this attack was. I mean, we'll never know, but it, it would be interesting to know if I actually maybe we could find that out by doing some research. If I just mailed, um mailed USB sticks out to people, mm -hmm. what percentage of those people would plug in the USB stick? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you could report your findings from jail. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, it, there's been some academic research on similar things with USB drops. Uh, right, Michael right. Bailey at, uh, I think he was at UIUC, University of Illinois Urbana, or UIUC, yeah, University yeah. of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, when he did, uh, he was, and he's just one of the authors on this study, but they, they dropped... Um, a bunch of USB sticks around and tracked how many people plugged them in based on a, uh, you know, because the, the USB stick would report back, right? right? Make an HTML request right. or something. Yeah. Um, and each USB stick was unique so they could track it. Yeah. Uh, but, the, you know, this is, this is interesting. Um, I, I wonder who's behind this. Yeah. You figure, I mean, it's probably around 10 bucks a pop to, to send these out, but if you if it does yield you an unusually high success rate, then right. well, I suppose it's worth it. At least they're trying it. I'll bet it's less than ten bucks though, because those USB sticks are probably very small and very cheap. Yeah, the giveaways. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, that is my story. I will have a link to that in the show notes. What do you have for us this week, Joe? Dave, it's the most wonderful time of the year. Yes. Right. <laughs> uh, and the the BBB is out with their 12 Scams of Christmas. Oh. Uh, this would make a terrible song, by the way. <laughs> Maybe at the end of this, we should sing it as a song. Okay. But so I wanted to, uh, as we as we approach the holiday season, by the time we post this, Hanukkah will already be over, but Christmas is still coming. So here, here are the, uh, the top, the 12 frauds of Christmas. Number one is misleading social media ads, mm. right? Mm-hmm. These guys go out and they buy ads on social on social media platforms like Facebook, Twitter, or what have you. They have these things like uh, free free trial offers or counterfeit goods. Usually, uh, there's a lot of risk in them. Sometimes they can just be uh, you know ways to collect your your information. Mm -hmm. uh, social media gift exchanges. This is one I haven't heard about. Hmm. Uh, you know, the, hey, sign up for a secret Santa uh, <laughs> secret Santa on on Facebook, and we're just going to send each other random gifts. <laughs> <laughs> Here's your your secret 
<laughs> this is a great scam. I'm going to tell everybody that I'm their that you know they're my secret Santa and they have to send me a gift. <laughs> and somebody will send them something. I'll get I'll get hundreds of things. That's a great idea. Jeez. Don't, okay. don't do Secret Santa on social media. That's terrible. Okay. Holiday apps. Uh, these are uh, apps that that are available in the store in the various stores. They're generally haven't been around for very long. Uh, I, I would steer clear of any apps that are holiday themed. Mm-hmm. Um, way back, there was uh, some Santa elf bowling thing. I can't remember what it was. It was a seasonal ad, but there was uh, it was reporting back to some server somewhere. I can't mm. remember all the details. That was back in the early 2000s. Mm. Uh, so that's been around for a long time. Uh, free gift cards. Free gift cards. Nothing brings out uh, the holiday cheer like free. <laughs> well, right? sure. And, uh, of course, when you click on these websites to get the free gift card, there's, there's, it's just a massive collection of your data. And at the end, there's no gift card. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yep. It's, uh, it's, just a, um, it's just a way to collect your data and then either sell it or sell it to they, – they say here identity thieves, but I would imagine there's also a market uh, like a more you – know, not an identity theft market, but a more legitimate use in terms of like marketing campaigns and things. Hmm. Right? Temporary holiday jobs, retailers will go out and hire people, but why not, as a scammer, why not use this opportunity uh, and this time of year to scam people with an employment scam? Mm-hmm. So be careful with those as well. Right. Make it, if you, especially if someone asks you to pay to apply to a job. Right. Never, ever pay to apply to a job. Never, yeah. under any circumstances. Hmm. Lookalike websites, holiday sites offering deals and sales and bargains. Right. Uh, they usually come in the form of emails. Uh, we, we've seen all kinds of things like this where that winds up being a uh, – uh, where they mail you something that's that's not of any value and you've paid tens or hundreds of dollars for it, mm-hmm. uh, and believing that you're getting a discount, and then they have a tracking number and they show that they were something was delivered. Uh, fake charities. Typically, 40% of all the charitable donations that a charity receives are received around this time of year. Hmm. Uh, probably for a couple of reasons, because it's the end of the year and people are doing it for tax reasons or because they're feeling the cheer of the season. Yeah. Uh, check out your charities, vet your charities. There's an organization here in the U.S. called Give.org that, uh, that rates charities because mm-hmm. there are even some charities out there that don't do a good job with managing their money. And these are legitimate charities. And you have to consider as a person donating to a charity, do you want your donation or a large portion of your donation being spent on more fundraising. Right. You know, you have to think about these things. Yeah. Fake shipping notifications. Now is a big time for fake ship, uh, fake shipping fishing, mm, right? Mm-hmm. Because if, are you expecting any gifts coming in the mail, Dave? <laughs> oh, one or two. Yeah, right. <laughs> so if you get an email right now right. that says, hey, this is uh, FedEx and, and we had a problem delivering your package right now. Right. Because if, ex- <laughs> if it doesn't arrive, your children will never love you again. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. So that it's this is the great a great time of year for this. Yeah. Um, this is one I hadn't heard of. Number number 10 is pop-up holiday virtual events. Hmm. So, uh, you know, there are holiday events every year. And because we're kind of at the tail end of this pandemic thing, uh, we're st- some, some people are still doing it virtually. Okay. Right? So, scammers are creating fake event pages and social media posts and emails claiming to be uh, the people organizing this, and they're charging admission for it. And hmm. it's a free event. Oh. Right? So 
Why not capitalize on a free event, Dave? Maybe you know, this is another great, uh, great opportunity for for me. I think you know, <laughs> the, 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 you know we, we often you, talk what about what is your retirement fund underfunded right. or something, Joe? Yeah. <laughs> a, do we need to have a conversation, Joe? Yeah, <laughs> you seem unusually interested in some of these get rich quick schemes this week. I don't <laughs> know. I'm always interested in get rich quick schemes. <laughs> okay, <laughs> top holiday wish list items. Right, these are the the big toy of the year, right? Yeah, tickle me Elmo. Right, tickle me Elmo. Or this year, I think it's the 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 Nintendo Switch. Yeah, you can't still. find a Nintendo Switch anywhere right now. Hmm. Uh, the only ones you can find are refurbished ones. So, if if you see an ad for one being sold ridiculously low, you should know right away that's a scam. Right. Okay. Right. First off, when these consoles come out, a lot of times, well, with consoles is different, right, than, than the rest of the toys. Yeah. But when Whenever there's a gift that's in really high demand, right? Like the Tickle Me Elmo you mentioned or the Switch I mentioned or any toy or gaming console or anything, those prices are going to be higher than the uh, the retail price, not lower. Right. So if you see a uh, an ad for a low-priced item, you should be wary of it. Mm-hmm. If you see an ad for just, hey, I'm selling this uh, Tickle Me Elmo or whatever it is for, uh, for list price, right? I just want to unload it because I'm a good person. You should be suspicious of that, right? If <laughs> right. you're going to buy these things from somebody, if you're going to pay pay what essentially is an item scalper uh, money for something, that's something you should do in person mm. uh, or through a trusted a trusted site like eBay mm-hmm. if you're going to do it. Uh, mm-hmm. It's not something you should do through some new site. I, it's very risky behavior. Yeah. Uh, and finally, and this one really, uh, really kind of gets my goat a little bit, puppy scams. Aw. Right, because uh, <laughs> actually – Fortunately, in, in the puppy scam, not a lot of dogs are, are involved. No dogs are involved in this, right? It's <laughs> no no animals were harmed right. in the execution of this scam. Right, exactly. <laughs> what what they're saying is they have pictures of these dogs and they're 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 selling you a dog that's like a pedigree dog and they're they're they'll go through all this process and you'll send a deposit mm-hmm. uh, and then you'll uh, you'll not get the puppy, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, generally, I think it's a bad idea to give uh, a dog as a Christmas gift or 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 a cat or any animal as a Christmas gift. Those are not Christmas gifts. Those are entities that you you should be making a serious, lifelong of the pet commitment to adopting them. Right. Um, and if you can adopt from a shelter, you should do that as well. There are plenty of animals out there that you can pay a very low fee for, and you can go out and meet these animals. Both of my dogs right now came from a, uh, a rescue out in West Virginia where we went out and got them. And, you know, it costs 150 bucks. You get to go out and you meet the dog and you go, yeah, I'll take, I'll, I'll take this one home and, and this will be my dog. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a lot better than dealing with a breeder. Our first dog, we actually did deal with a breeder because we had a, a, a requirement uh, a, for a, uh, not, a dog that will not give my son allergies because he was young and had respiratory issues, but, yeah. which he's since outgrown. Uh, and if, if that's got to be your uh, situation and you have to get a dog like a poodle, um, then go meet the dog. Always meet the dog. If a breeder is not going to let you meet the dog, that's probably a scam. Yeah. Go, yeah. Go, go, yeah. And go meet the breeder. Make sure right. that the the dog is just in some puppy farm. Or right. Something. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Tour that area. <clears throat> yeah. You know, when we went to where we got our first dog, that was a, a nice setting. Mm-hmm. It was a, it was, it was clear this was not some, some puppy mill. It was just, a woman that had a, a a a poodle, a miniature poodle that she was breeding, uh, and she she would have a litter a year, and we just said, just give us the runt. We we want him, yeah. and that's <laughs> that's what we got. Okay. He was a great dog. Yeah, 
Yeah. So the scam here is that you, someone will put up an ad or something and says, hey, oh, we're yeah, having the scam. a litter. That's right. This show's about scams, <laughs> not having, about my dogs. Sorry. Right. <laughs> <Welcome> <laughs> to, to puppy time with Joe. Right, yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, so the scam is, uh, you know, hey, look, at you can get this dog. Would you like to have this golden doodle, right? Mm-hmm. Or the, uh, right. A, a hot, the hot breed. Right. Golden yep. doodles right now are like $4,000 for a puppy. Yeah. And uh, they will they will show you pictures of golden doodles. They'll say, "Look at him; he's so cute. Look how funny he is." Right. Uh, but you'll never see the dog, and they'll insist on a deposit, maybe like four hundred dollars, a ten percent deposit. Mm-hmm. And okay, now we've held the dog, and then as soon as you give them the money, they disappear. They're gone. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. And you're out four hundred bucks. Yeah, and no puppy. And no puppy. That's right. <laughs> now the cost of your golden doodle just went to forty four hundred dollars. <laughs> right. Exactly. All right. Well, uh, this is the naughty list, the BBB's 12 (laughs) Scams of Christmas. Uh, That's from the Better Business Bureau, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from Henry, who is a listener, and he got this email. Uh, There is a lot of appeal to religion in this email. Hmm. So why don't you read it? All right. It goes like this. Greetings in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I am Mrs. Elizabeth A. Johnson from Bahrain, a widow to late Dr. A. Johnson. I am 51 years old and a coveted born-again Christian, suffering from long-time cancer of the breast. From all indication, my condition is really deteriorating, And it's quite obvious I might not live to more than two months, according to my doctor, because the cancer has gotten to a very worst, dangerous stage. My late husband and my only child died last five years ago. His death was politically motivated. The late husband was a very rich and wealthy businessman who was running his gold diamond business here in South Africa. After his death, I inherited all his business and wealth. My doctors has advised me that I may not live for more than two months, so I now decided to divide the pot of this wealth to contribute to the development of the church in Africa, America, Asia, and Europe. I collected your email address during my desperate search on the Internet, and I prayed over it. I decided to donate the sum of States dollars to the less privileged because I cannot take this money to the grave. Please, I want you to note that this fund is lodged in a bank here in South Africa. Once I hear from you, I will forward to you all the information you will use to get this fund released from the bank and to be transferred to your bank account. I honestly pray that this money, when transferred to you, will be used for the said purpose because I has come to find out that wealth acquisition without Christ is vanity. (laughs) May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God, and the fellowship of God be with you and your family. Reply to me on my private email address, mlizabethjohnson at gmail.com. Right. <laughs> oh, goodness, Joe. Yeah, man. This is, um, you know, this is a typical advanced fee scam. Yep. They're just going to try to to bilk whoever responds to this out of fees promising money that's never coming. But, right. uh, I mean, the the first off, she changes from being from Bahrain to being uh to in South Africa, I guess you could ask what the story is there, but they'll, well, they'll, she's a woman of the world. Right, she's, yeah, she's a world traveler. traveler. She's yeah. Right. <laughs> Apart from the the terrible English and the obvious scam part, this is, people will fall for this though. You know, they, or else they wouldn't be sending these out. Yeah, well, and 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 sort of keying in on someone's faith, you know, right. which again is a is a way to 
uh, short circuit someone's rational thinking. You, I mean, you've got you have a sick woman here, right? right in another country, she's not going to be around much longer, and uh, and her story is all she wants to happen is this money to be used for good things. Mm-hmm. So you know, even if somebody uh, through their good faith wanted to use every dollar of this for missions of their church, right? They're still going to get scammed. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm I'm very wary of people that that approach me and and speak to me like this, mm-hmm. uh, and tr- try to appeal to uh, a mutual belief system. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, and it doesn't have to be just religion; it can be just about anything. Yeah. Uh, I I I, <sighs> I digress. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like there's a story there we don't have time for. Yeah, there is a story we don't have time for. But uh, and maybe someday we will. Okay, we will tell that story. Yeah, but once, I think it's once good a few advice. people have passed away, tell I, the story. See, I see. Ah, I see. It's one of those stories. Yes, we uh, all. I think all of us have those kinds of stories in our lives. Right. Uh, yeah, but I think it's a good lesson too that. Um, you know, people try to use these things uh, to build rapport with you. Yeah, absolutely. And take advantage of you. And, and that, that's that's essentially what they are doing. They're trying to build instant rapport and and trying to ex- establish a relationship where there should be none. Yeah. And there, there is none, and, there, and that's the way it should be. Yeah. All right. Well, our thanks to our listener, Henry, for sending this in. Uh, we would love to hear from you. If you have a catch of the day you would like us to consider for the show, you can send it to us. Email us at hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Dave Sensi. He is from MasterCard's new data security uh, division. And uh, we're discussing security issues with remote access and uh, what are called coaching frauds. Mm-hmm. Here's my conversation with Dave Sensi. Yeah, so when we're talking about coaching, what this is is when a fraudster or an individual um, manipulates a genuine user to believe they are someone who they aren't to perform fraudulent activities on the fraudster's behalf. So mm-hmm. a very simple business example would be that I call you, Dave. I convince you that I am from the bank. I ask for information. And there's two different ways that you can go about this. One is I ask for, like, let's say the OTP that the bank sends you. And then I go do the fraud um, myself as the fraudster. Or the second option would be is where I actually exploit you and continue to make you think that I am somebody else. And you do the fraud um, on my behalf. And what kind of fraud would we be talking about here? Yeah, so let's using an example of um, let's say I call you and I ask for your OTP and I convince you that I'm the bank and we're just doing some checks and you give me your one time passcode. I then log into your bank account. I would then take the funds or the value out of that account, out of it, transfer the money out, whatever it may be. On the other side, um, let's say that I'm coaching you on the phone, continuing to make you believe that again, I work for the bank. I have you log in. I tell you what to do. I may say, hey, Dave, we accidentally deposited an additional $5,000 in your account. Um, you can see on my screen that that has happened, and I'm going to need you to transfer some of that back. What what I would actually be sharing you on the screen is just a mocked up image of your, um, your statement or your account that makes it appear there's an additional amount of money in there, but it's not actually in there. And then you would transfer the funds out on your behalf over to me. 
So two different types of coaching there. One is where I'm exploiting the user and I continue to exploit them and have them do the fraud on their um, on my behalf. Or two is just where I get some information from you and then I would then perpetrate the fraud as the fraudster. How would you rank the sophistication of these folks in terms of the amount of work they have to do ahead of time to, to head into one of these scams? So here's what I would say. I don't know if it's a sophisticated type of fraud. It's more mm-hmm. sophisticated social engineering. So you have to be able to manipulate people, make them believe that you're somebody you're not, be very confident. And, and there's a lot of value behind that. So it's not so much that it's sophisticated fraud attack, because truly you're convincing someone that you're not and then having them provide you information that provide that gets you value. Now it's going to you know you hit on the amount of work. It's going to take a lot of a work, work because you're going to run across a lot of people that aren't willing to provide that information due to the education that the companies have sent out to watch out for this type of scam. Yeah, I, I guess what I'm wondering is, do these scammers come in, how much stuff do they know about me coming in? Do they know what bank I deal with? Do they have the last four digits of my social security number? Do we have any insights there? I don't know if they have that level of detail, but what they mm-hmm. have to know at a minimum is who you are. I think they could even get away with not knowing which bank you're at. If they, you know, you'll get those calls that say, hey, we're calling you from the MasterCard and Visa department. But we all know, I personally know, that that department doesn't exist because they're two separate companies. So I would tell mm-hmm. you that it's going to vary drastically based on the level of information you have. But the fraudsters that want to go for the true high value, let's say someone that's just extremely well off, they're going to be able to do their research to, to take the time to find the right victim. But then you're going to have fraudsters who just go based on volume, meaning I'm going to call up you know, 100 people a day and hopefully I get one person. Now, they're not going to need to do as much research because those are the people that are going to fall for, hey, this is uh, such and such from the MasterCard Visa department. But those more sophisticated attacks where they are taking the time to do the research, looking you up on LinkedIn, trying to buy information about you on the dark web, those are going to take a bit more time and be a little bit more sophisticated just because they did their research. Mm-hmm. But they're really trading off of some of that uh, brand equity that an organization like MasterCard would have and the breadth of the, I guess, the perceived interaction that a brand like MasterCard has with so many banks. Yeah, fundamentally agree. So if if a fraudster can take the time to determine who someone is banking with, learn some information about them, it's going gonna, it's gonna to make them appear to be more credible. But that's why it's so critical. And you see a lot of these banks sending out information. We will never ask for your one-time passcode. Do not share your passphrase with us. They're pushing out all this education to kind of mitigate some of these social engineering attacks and scams that happen. So what can be done here? I mean, is this education? Are there technical things that can be put into place? How can individuals and organizations do a better job of... Uh, of minimizing the chances that they'll fall victim to, to this sort of thing. Yeah, it, it 100% starts with education. So here's the scams to watch out for. Um, you'll even see internal, uh, you'll see companies internally to try to promote education to say, hey, watch out for phishing attacks. Look for these telltale signs. Um, and then I'd say it continues with education, even to your, your client or consumer base. We will never ask for your one-time passcode. We will never reach out directly and ask for this. So there's ways you can validate when someone's calling you to, to get a sense if this feels right or it doesn't feel right. 
But beyond education, there are things you can put in place to help identify these when these types of attacks are happening. So let's walk through those two business examples that I referenced. Yeah. One where I'm going to call you and ask you for your OTP or two where I continue to keep you on the phone and have you do the fraud on my behalf. So those you can put some um, behavioral biometrics in place to identify that type of uh, behavior. And let me explain how. So in a scenario where I'm asking for your one-time passcode and then I log into your account, my behavior, after, even though I had the right credentials, my behavior is not going to be the same as yours. So the way that I type in your username and password is not going to be the same way that you type it in, Dave. And then the way that I navigate through that account isn't normal behavior. I'm coming from a new device. I'm coming from a new IP address. Companies are going to be able to identify that and say, this seems off here. This isn't normally how Dave interacts. Um, we may want to flag this as malicious. Now, on the flip side, Dave, where I then make you do the fraud on my behalf, it's a little bit more challenging, but you still can identify this. So if you think about it, this is still Dave coming in from his same IP address. This is still Dave coming in from his same device, but his behavior is slightly off. He's pausing. He's on the page longer because he's listening to someone on the phone. He's debating in his head if this is genuine or not genuine, but he's still proceeding. So the way that he normally operates on that page has changed. He's on the page longer than the average human population would be on this page. He's navigating in a weird way just because things feel off and he's just not used to this scenario, but he's still proceeding. So these tiny anomalies can give indication that something is off and you can use this to then, as a bank, to introduce some type of friction to say, hey, Dave, is this really you? Let's send you some type of verification or these different type of anomalies can give indication that something's off here and you can use these to mitigate this. Now, this isn't 100% going to capture every single instance, but it's a good starting point if you can start with education to your consumers and to your employees and then put some behavioral biometrics in place to say, if this does happen, Let's better identify when it's happening so we can mitigate it. Can you describe to me what happens when the behavioral biometrics does flag something? What, what happens from the user's point of view? What do they see and, and how do you go about that extra layer of verification? Yeah, so um, behavioral biometrics is going to le leverage a passive way to identify whether it's a genuine user or not genuine user. So the user would not be able to see um, a difference uh, when they're interacting. Meaning you're looking at, as I said, time on page, time in a specific field, typing mm. cadence, mouse movement. All, are you alt-tabbing? Are you copying and pasting? So what happens is when you leverage like a behavioral biometrics um, solution, information is sent from that solution to, in this example we're talking about, a bank to say this specific interaction is risky. The bank would then take that score and then do some type of intervention to say if it's super risky – Maybe we're going to block the event that's happening. Maybe we're going to introduce friction. Maybe because it's so obviously fraud, we're going to put them in a honeypot, which is um, where the fraudster believes that they're interacting with a genuine site, but it's actually a site that doesn't have real financial or impact um, to the real servers. So the entity, the bank that is receiving these risky scores has a variety of different mitigation tactics to put in place depending on the confidence of whether it is fraud or it is not fraud. Do you think there's a competitive advantage here for the organizations that are putting these sorts of things in place? I mean, it's, is this the kind of thing where if I'm shopping around for a new bank, should I be asking the degree to which they're using things like this to help protect me and my, my family and my colleagues and coworkers? 
I would say security certainly should be top of mind when identifying um, an optimal organization to work with, right? Uh, we know that consumers care about security and they want their information protected. So the degree that I'm going to go out and reach out to the bank and try to get a sense of what their security stack looks like, I feel like that may be a little bit of difficult by doing some Googling online. Um, but I can tell you the majority of banks, and especially the larger ones, have this level of sophistication in place. So yes, I would say security is certainly top of mind for consumers when looking for a bank to work with. Anyone that is holding value of someone else's wants that properly secured. So giving that giving that sense of comfort to the consumer, I would say it's critical. So then I, I guess, it, I mean, it's really the education part that people can can do for themselves, for their employees, for themselves, for their families. I mean, that part people can uh, implement on their own. Yeah, I mean, educa- education is critical, right? It starts with the organization that you work with, with the organization making you aware of these type of attacks and the telltale signs. It starts with education from the company down to their consumer base. Um, and yes, 100% agree. It comes down to me educating my grandparents about, hey, this type of fraud exists. Grandma, no one is going to call you from the bank and ask for this. So don't give it to anyone that calls. So agree, it goes to education from the organization to the employees, organization to their consumers, and then just between our own family and friends as well. All right, Joe, what do you think? A lot of interesting stuff in that interview, Dave. Mm. Uh, one of the things I would like to note, and I, I, I don't know if this is how this works internally on a bank system, but I think if a bank accidentally transfers $5,000 into your account, that they are perfectly capable of transferring it out. Uh, yeah, I would think so. Right. If they, if they mistake, if they commit that kind of error, they can correct that error. They might have to call you or notify you about it, mm-hmm. but they won't walk you through the process. They will say, hey, Dave, we accidentally put $5,000 intended for someone else's uh, account into your account. We're going to take that money out right now. So yeah. don't don't think that you received some windfall. I actually had that happen to me once. Oh, did you? Yeah, it was a little different. It was uh, someone, this is, uh, someone had written a check and uh-huh. uh, I deposited it. And uh, before I wrote against that check, you know, I went and said uh, to the bank, this check is cleared, right? And they were like, yep, it's cleared. I'm like, you're absolutely sure this check is cleared. This check is cleared. <laughs> so I can write against this check. Yes, sir, the check is cleared. <laughs> so I started writing against the check. Oh, sir, uh, funny story. The check hasn't cleared. <laughs> and, they, and they pulled the money out. So, yes. Uh, uh, so, yes, they can do that. Right. <laughs> and they will. <laughs> that was for a check that didn't clear, though, right? Yeah, that was for a check that didn't clear. That's that's yeah, that's a different issue. Like what if so, if somebody deposited five thousand dollars into their account and they wrote the account number down wrong and they put your account number down. Yeah, and then they call in and go, oh, I I see that you. They look at the receipt. The bank can correct that error. They right? can. Yes, yes. Um, I was in their legal ability to do so. Even right. if you d- took it all out as cash, right? I think the bank could come back to you and say, "Hey, knucklehead, put that money back." Right. You know, or or here's an here's an IOU. You know. Yeah. <laughs> or you owe us. Your account now is overdrawn. <laughs> exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, these kind of attacks are not uh, so. My point in this whole discussion is, the bank doesn't really need your help to do this, mm. right? Mm-hmm. You should mm-hmm. be aware of that. Yeah. Uh, and that and that and I I want to emphasize that. Somebody that calls you from their bank and says, oh, I accidentally transferred money into your account and I need your help getting it out, that's a lie. Right. And that's a scam. Right. Uh, These kind of attacks are not technically sophisticated, which is kind of why we talk about them here on this show. Mm. Um, It's interesting that he says he, uh, 18 months ago, 
they weren't talking about social engineering uh, with coaching scams. Hmm. Uh, we've been doing this show for three years. Yeah. Um, you know, it may, it, it, I will agree with it, with Dave on that, that we, that social engineering is now a much more front of mind issue among security professionals than it has been in the past. Right. Uh, and that, and that's good. That's good. I think that's great. Actually. Uh, some attackers are just going to spam call these people and some are going to do much more research. Mm-hmm. So it really depends on the attacker's capabilities. Uh, I, I think that people need to be mindful that that it doesn't matter what the what the attacker's capabilities are because if you think about one end of the scale where they're not very skilled, uh, while they're not very skilled, there's a lot of them, right? Right. And the ones that are very skilled, there's not many of them, but they're really good at what they do. Right. So you have that continuum to contend with, and you should be aware of it. Yeah. Um, when I log into my financial institutions, some of them have the uh, – I still have – SMS messages. I, I did find that one of them started using uh, hardware keys, and I'm going to change that. Hmm. Uh, but some of them say, hey, here's the code. We will never ask you for this. And other ones just say, here's the code. Right. So I think I have a letter to write. <laughs> because saying in the text message that we will never ask you for this code is probably the easiest and cheapest thing a financial institution can do to reduce fraud. Yeah. Yeah, it would help. Yeah. Education is key, uh, so keep listening to us, right? Because we're a form of education. Uh, here's my advice on, on this entire coaching thing. Never provide information on an inbound call. Never mm-hmm. take any action on an inbound call. It is always 100% okay to say to someone who has called you, I'm going to call you back on the number I have on file. Right. Right. Or on the number and, on your web page. don't let them give you a number to call back. Right. Don't let them give you don't a number to call back. Say, oh, just call me on my direct line. Right. No, 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 no. You tell me what your extension is and I will find you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm going to call you back. Mm-hmm. And if they insist, if they, you'll, you may notice at that point in time, they start trying to scare you. Mm-hmm. That should be a red flag that this is a scam. Hang up the phone. Mm-hmm. Then call your bank and make sure everything's okay. Yeah. Right. Dave was talking about behavioral biometrics and that's interesting. Uh, it won't stop everything, but it could move any financial institution into a more secure direction, mm-hmm. right? Toward more security than less security. But these solutions require the development of software on both the user end and the back end. Uh, and you need to collect that data and analyze it. So, yeah, I don't know. This is, this is something that's, that's uh, probably something that larger organizations can do. Uh, smaller organizations, maybe not. Yeah. Uh, but... Maybe there's a software solution out there for it that they could that smaller organizations could just buy off the shelf. Yeah, I don't know. I, I've noticed that uh, a couple of the online banking uh, apps that I use have enabled uh, Face ID, for example, to, right. to log in. So once once you've established a secure connection with things like SMS and so on and so forth, you can say, "Hey, for the next thirty days, uh, trust my Face ID to let me into this app, and it'll and right. it'll do so." So that, you know, I think that's a good compromise. Mm-hmm. And finally, from the customer perspective, I think we do need to start asking financial institutions about their security policies and practices mm-hmm. and what they're doing to keep our information safe and our, and our money safe. Uh, how are they, how, how, how do they do fraud prevention? Uh, what's, what's my recourse if I get scammed out of money? Mm-hmm. Uh, what mm-hmm. do you do to prevent that from happening to me? How do you, financial institution who holds my money and profits from it, protect me, the the money owner? Yeah. That's that's a question that everybody should ask when they go in to start a new account. 
It, it should be part of the conversation. Yeah, and it can be a competitive advantage these Absolutely. days, I, I believe. All right, well, our thanks again to Dave Sensi. He is from MasterCard's New Data Security Team for taking the time for us. We do appreciate that. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. We want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening. <laughs>